The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. going everybody welcome to the show it is time for break the business where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way i'm ryan carella and it is a pleasure to have you here this week so so excited so many things to talk about great to have you here Ah, oh, sorry the Oscars were so boring over the weekend. We got nothing to talk about there. Just a complete snooze fest that uh, Oscars. Nothing interesting happened, so we'll just keep moving on with that. Let me bring in producer Lauren here. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Ryan. Hey, <laughs> all right. Uh, we get lots of great news to share with Ooh. our friends here at Break the Business. First, uh, I feel like I can announce this because our boy just announced it on Twitter. So I think that makes it like public domain for announcing purposes. But congrats to our dearest friend at Break the Business, Metal Dave, who is now Metal Dad. Oh, yeah! uh, just welcomed a beautiful baby girl into the world. I cannot think of a luckier kid to have a cool dad like Metal Dave. I'm I'm so thrilled for him. What a what a fabulous fabulous thing! I I I've been beaming for the last two days. Uh, Did he Twitter release a name? Um, I don't know if he has. So, like, um, I don't want to share it, if he doesn't know. But it, it might be a he might have like, Facebook released the name, but I don't know if like his profile's public. I'm not sure what the rules are there. Here's what I can say. All right, the metal baby, metal baby, <laughs> cute kid. <laughs> darling child and dad is happy mom is happy and this podcast host is happy which i think is the most important of those three right it's that, true well for you know, me <laughs> everybody says that when a child's brought into the world the most important person that you always want to make sure is happy is the dad's podcaster friend and i can tell oh, you right course. now i'm over the moon like this is wonderful wonderful news and so i'm in a good mood going right into this podcast and there are lots of great other reasons why we're happy. Of course, our guest this week puts a smile on our face. We're going to be talking later to music executive Rusty Harmon. He's the co-founder of Veer Music, a label services company. I love the emergence of label services companies. I love the emergence of companies that are like, you know, we can do all the things that a label can do. We can do the marketing. We can do the promotion. We can do the infrastructure, give you the mentoring. But we don't need to own your masters. You keep your masters. We don't need to give you crappy royalty rates. We're going to do a partnership thing. So I want to talk to Rusty about the rise of these label services companies, figure out the extent to which these are viable options for indie creators, and just talk to somebody who's been a longtime executive of the industry, was the manager of Hootie and the Blowfish when Hootie and the Blowfish were at the height of their powers. So I'm sure he's got lots of cool stories there. Going to be a great, great interview. Excited for that coming after the break. One other story uh, I want to share with you quickly before we kind of get into the meat of the proceedings uh, this evening, Lauren. Um, kind of a, an acute law school story that just came across my desk. Uh, one of my friends just texted me about this and then I saw it on Twitter. So, you know, from knowing me when I was in law school that I don't have a lot of fond memories of law school, law school, it until sucked. the law review came along until you have the, lots of 
the law and, and by the way that's law review r-e-v-u-e not the one that the smart people are in but the one where you get to like do a show and lampoon the professors so we have found another group of law students that seem that are seeming to have just as much fun in law school as i did with that performance group uh, but they had a little fun with March Madness. You'll like this, Lauren. Students at UNC Chapel Hill Law School uh, found a creative way to get more time on an assignment. So as you might know, Lauren, because uh, we were watching uh, college basketball over the weekend, the University of Miami Hurricanes got mollywhopped by the Kansas Jayhawks. They had a good first half. They did. Oh, man. I, I wish that like all that mattered were first halves. Um, we we should hang in the rafters of the University of Miami basketball arena, uh, beat Kansas in the first half, Elite Eight. Like that's that's no one that's, thought we were going to do that much. That's just, fair <laughs> to me. That's yeah. Let's not talk about the second half. Second half wasn't so great. But so but UNC is in the final four. They won their Elite Eight game unlike the University of Miami and they are meeting Duke in the final four. Duke and UNC, bitter rivals. Yeah. You know, both North Carolina schools, they hate each other. And surprisingly, this is not only the first time that these two teams have met in the Final Four, it's the first two times these teams have ever met in the NCAA tournament. So, needless to say, a big deal. But there is a group of UNC law students who have a huge paper due for their legal research and writing class that's worth 65% of their grade Whoa. that's due right after like the Final Four game. So this group of future law students used their legal powers to file a motion for an extension of time with their professor, uh, citing uh, extenuating circumstances. They actually had a pretty compelling argument because they said, you know, we've read the syllabus. You know, they actually did some statutory interpretation here. And the syllabus says that extensions on papers will only be granted uh, in, quote, wild circumstances, such as the school being closed for two weeks. And then they're like, well, look, what's more wild? School being closed for two weeks because of snow, which happens all the time in North Carolina, or Duke and UNC playing each other in the Final Four, which has never happened and may never happen again. And they submitted this, and it got even more hilarious because... Uh, once the students submitted this like legal, like formal legal brief, like with all the little trimmings and everything in it to their professor, another professor filed an amicus brief, which is like a friend of the court brief where like if you support somebody's court case, like you'll file another brief with the court saying I support them and here's why. And so a professor filed an amicus brief and then all of the faculty members like formed a Supreme Court and actually like ruled on their motion <laughs> And then granted their motion for an extension of time. And so now these uh, UNC students get an extra, I guess, week to finish their paper, uh, having successfully argued a motion in the court of UNC law. Like, I wish uh, that I could have done something as valuable with my law degree at such a young age as these kids. Kudos to the students at yeah. UNC law. And I Putting like that law they, degree to work. Right, exactly. <laughs> they they did it through the system as opposed to uh, trying right. to beat the system. That's it's awesome. good. It's good for them to get an experience of like the system working. Yeah, you know, like have that experience once while you're young. Like, don't get don't uh, lose your idealism when you actually become lawyers and find out how like ridiculous the system is and how there is no justice there. But right now, you get a win. Congratulations, kids. <laughs> Hey, maybe with this next generation of legal minds, we will have a system that works. You know, we got to we have to believe in them. One can hope. Certainly there was justice today at Chapel Hill. That's awesome.
<laughs> well, let's stay within the theme of justice here. I want to talk more about justice for the little guy, uh, helping the little guy against the big, big, uh, unfair big guy, which is so often the theme here on this program. And we have a pretty interesting example of that kind of David versus Goliath component in the record label world happening right now in the state of California. Let me give you a little briefing here, Lauren. So today, as we are recording this episode on March the 30th, the the California State Assembly, which is the state legislature over in California, is currently holding hearings on the FAIR Act. The FAIR Act is legislation that would provide artists signed to record deals more power against labels and would allow artists under certain circumstances more ability to get out of label deals that have dragged on too long and are not helping the artist anymore. They're putting in divorce clauses into our, uh, our wedding. Mandatory divorce clauses, in fact. So a little bit of background might be helpful here because California has some pretty interesting laws when it comes to uh, service contracts or, you know, contracts where somebody does something for somebody else. So in the California Labor Code, there's a section 2855, which is called the de Havilland Law, named after of old Hollywood actress Olivia de Havilland. It was enacted in 1944, and what the law says is that personal services contracts uh, can only be seven years. If they go past seven years, the person providing the services has the ability to void the contract. Generally... You see this kind of stuff in contract law throughout the country. Uh, contract law tends to discourage things that kind of like smell like slave contracts. You don't want people stuck in contracts forever. We generally want to allow people kind of free flow of their labor and things like that. And so California said 1944, and this was meant for artists, by the way, because artists were often stuck in these like really bad contracts with movie studios and record companies. And so they said, okay, fine, we're going to create this law that says you can get out of a contract after seven years. Which, you know, from my perspective, sounds pretty great. Smash cut to 1987. The state of California, under intense lobbying by record labels, amends this law. Mm. Saying, and now, so the amendment said, okay, artists can still terminate after seven years. But if the artist does want to terminate, the label has the right to sue the artist for damages, including the lost profits for undelivered albums. So wow. if you do a seven album deal and you get to the uh, end of the seven years and you still have three albums left, in theory, the label can sue that artist for the three undelivered albums. And they which... can hold you back so you can't even record those albums. Ah, and now we get to the rub. Mm. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, for many artists, this is a crappy deal under record deals because as we've talked about on this show a lot, Generally, it's the label that has the most control out of how when it comes to how often an artist records. Uh, you know, if the late, you know, generally the artist wants to record, the artist wants to put more material out there. And when an artist gets seven years into a deal and hasn't done seven albums, it's almost always the label's fault. The label's holding the artist back. The label doesn't want to spend the money. The label wants to keep the artist sort of in developmental hell where they're like, well, we don't really want you to make any albums right now because we don't think they'd be a hit, but we also don't want you making albums for somebody else, so we're not going to let you out of the deal. We're just going to let keep you stuck in there. And we've seen this, by the way, in action, right? So, Lauren, I think you have the old tweet 
that we put up a God months ago. We talked about the situation with the artist Ray. This was a UK artist uh, that was stuck in a record deal. I think she was in it for four years with her label and the and the label never put out an album. She's like, I've been seven years, four years with this label. They have not released an album. I want to record. I'm here. I'm ready to record. The label's not releasing me. And oh, wait, do we have it here? Do you have? There mm-hmm. we go. Ah, perfect. So this is the tweet from Ray. She let me, let me say it in her own words here. Quote, I have been on a four album deal since 2014. And I haven't been allowed to put out one album. All I care about is the music. I'm sick of being slept on and I'm sick of being in pain about it. This is not business to me. This is so personal. So in theory, a law like the de Havilland law, which allows you to get out of a contract after seven years, would be a great way to prevent things like this from happening, at least on the extremes, right? Because if an artist like Ray is seven years into her contract and she still has albums to deliver, but the label's not letting her record, the artist can effectively take her ball and go home and go work with a label that does want to distribute her music. But this 1987 amendment came along and said, and basically took the artist's power away to do that because an artist isn't going to get out of their deal after seven years if it means that the label's going to sue them for the four undelivered albums that the label is the reason why they're undelivered. So... Mm-hmm. And it's an arbitrary number of how much those damages would be. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, they were going to hit all number ones, all of those albums. (laughs) And that's the disingenuous part, right? Like if an an artist has four undelivered albums or three undelivered albums at the end of a seven year uh, period, it means that the uh, label didn't think the artist was going to make any hits. But you better believe if the artist tries to terminate that deal after seven years and the label can sue for damages, they're going to go to the court and be like, your honor, these albums would have popped. Yeah. Every single like top number one, she would have won all the Grammys, Your Honor. And now we don't get to make any of this money. Yep. You better believe it. So obviously, we see the problem here, right? Uh, the way that record deals are structured, they're not based on years, they're based on albums. And the label controls how often these albums get made. And so, um, if you don't have a way that artists can get out of the deal, you can be stuck in these contracts for a long time, especially if you have an exception to the seven-year rule in California, which says the label can sue for damages on undelivered albums. So this is the problem. But now the California Assembly wants to create the solution. That's the FAIR Act. The FAIR Act would remove the 1987 Amendment exception and bring us back to the seven-year rule. You know, if you get to seven years and there are undelivered albums on the deal, then that's on them. Then that's on them. You should have... <laughs> And and by the way, like if, uh, you know, if a label, let's say a label paid you in advance for those seven albums and then you walk away, the label can still sue you to get that advance back, but they can't sue you for the lost profits on the undelivered albums anymore. And the artist has a lot more flexibility to walk away. And to me, this is the way this, you know, this shaping up the law that way makes a lot more sense because, you know, it's good for the artist because it gives them the freedom when they need it. And it's good for the industry, too, because it lights a fire under the label's butt to get them to make these records. They, they know that they're going to lose that artist in seven years come hell or high water. So they're going to make sure they can get every album from that artist delivered so they get the, their full money's worth on the contract. Or if they are sure that they're not going to get to the, you know, the albums they want delivered, they'll drop the artist and give the artist an ability to work with another label. Like that kind of freedom, that kind of flexibility 
um, is super, super important. So I'm glad that we're finally seeing uh, some movement here, which is which is oh, long overdue. Okay, question. Yeah. If they advance you money because you're going to make seven albums with them, and then they don't make said seven albums, but you've still spent seven years of your life not being able to produce music and living off of said money, you still owe them that money back? Well, here's why that's kind of a moot point. Because the labels are, this is the argument the labels are making, right? They're making this kind of parade of horribles argument where it's like, but we've advanced the artist all this money for these seven albums. And if they get to quit after album four because seven years are up, they're going to pocket that money. Yeah. Here's why that's a nonsense argument. <laughs> I've reviewed so many record deals, way more record deals than I care to admit. <laughs> I can't tell you how few record deals I have read where the artist gets paid in advance for album number seven from the beginning, right? The advances are paid one album at a time. Like, because, like, an artist doesn't sign a seven-album deal, right? You see that in the news. Oh, so-and-so got a three-album deal, five-album deal, seven-album deal. It's never a seven-album deal or three-album deal. It's a one-album deal, and the label has six options for six more albums that they exercise one at a time. And so if the label wants to go from album one to album two, then they'll pay you the advance for the second album or the third album. But there's they're never going to pay you in advance for all seven albums, unless you're freaking Ed Sheeran, right? So this is like what they are proposing here, what they are complaining about just doesn't exist for the vast majority of label signed artists. It's a super disingenuous argument. Hmm. Kind of sad. I was kind of hoping you get a big chunk of money up front, but I didn't want to owe it back <laughs> later. So, well, frankly, <laughs> it's hard enough to find to get labels to actually give artists any kind of real advance at all. Like, mm. You know, the the record industry isn't what it was 30 years ago, right? Like, we're not giving out the multi-million dollar advances anymore. Like, an, an artist is lucky to get, you know, 50 Gs for an album. And that, and bar, by the way, some of that 50 Gs is going to pay, you know, you have to pay for making your album with that. Yeah. And so, like, you know, some of that money is uh, is not going into your pocket to feed your family. Right. So, you know. And they I, own I, you. And then they, and they own you. And they own your next seven masters. And. You know, and so this is this is so necessary and it corrects so many issues that I hope it passes and I don't see uh, why it wouldn't. The other thing that this law does, which I thought was neat, I kind of saw this snuck in there mm -hmm. is um, sometimes what happens in record deals, because remember, I said it's options, right? Like the, the label is approving one album at a time. Sometimes what happens, the artist delivers an album to the label, finishes the album, says, here you go, label, put the album out. The label releases it and they never exercise their second option. It just, they just sort of sit there because, like, they don't want to exercise the option because they don't want to pay the artist the advance and they don't want to pay to make the album because they're not convinced that the artist is going to be successful with that album. So they just keep you in limbo. They hold you and hostage. They yeah. hold you hostage. And so, what this law says is it sets a time limit on that. I think it's like six months or nine months where they say, label, if you don't exercise your option within X number of months of releasing the prior record, then the artist can cut bait. Nice. Yes. See, that's something. <laughs> <laughs>
And well, it puts a fire under there. But I mean, if they say artists make an album, there's a fire under your butt. It's it's nice yeah. that there's some kind of fire telling them, you know, you've got some obligation to the people that you've contracted. That's yeah. Ultimately, what we're trying to bring about with laws like this is just sort of a put up or shut up mentality <laughs> with the label. Like, mm -hmm. if you want to make a record with this artist because you think that they're viable, then do it. Like, let's make this record and let's make it awesome. If you don't think this artist is viable or if you're not convinced and you and, you know, you're not you're on the fence, then cut that artist loose so that they have the opportunity to work with somebody else who has more faith in them. Now, to the, to the credit of many labels, a lot of labels will do right by artists, right? If they think it's not working out or they think that there's not a relationship there, um they'll, you know, they'll say, "All right, we're dropping you and it's great, no problem." But there are a lot of labels that aren't that chill and they will keep the artist hostage as you so aptly put it. And so we need to remove that at least after seven years, we can all agree. If you're if you're keeping them stuck there for seven years, maybe that's long enough that we can give an artist another opportunity. And like, don't get me wrong, this doesn't make record deals fair. No. <laughs> this doesn't make record deals fundamentally okay. I wrote a whole book about why these documents are abhorrent. But if we can make them three to five percent better <laughs> by enacting a law in California that you know, just keeps these things from going on forever without actually helping artists. To me, that's a big, big one. So Not I'm, that I'm seven years is a short time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and frankly, when, um, you know, I feel like I'm going to be sort of uh, ambushing our guest, Rusty Harmon, with this, but I know he's worked in the industry for a long time. He's an industry executive and as the uh, person from a, works with in a label services company and founded one. He might have some thoughts on this. I don't know if he wants to talk about that or if he'll run for the hills and I don't blame him because it's probably no, he's a very already, controversial he's already issue chomping in the industry. At the bit. He's back Is that right? Going, I want in. I'm like, don't oh, worry. We'll chat with Fabulous. You All right, Rusty. We're going <laughs> like after the break, we will we will get your perspective on this because I'm just some you know, I'm I'm just some artist side lawyer, so I'm biased here. I'm gonna, you know, I want every record deal to say that like artists get a birthday cake every day and <laughs> like a million dollar check from their label every hour. And so that's, you know, and so maybe, you know, you have a more balanced perspective on that. I don't know, but we're going to find out in the next break. So don't go anywhere for that. But first, Lauren, uh, I want to talk to you about one more thing okay. that uh, just just a quick little story about the Supreme Court here. Uh, can you put up this picture for me? The, the one I showed you of Prince. Sure. All right. So uh, I want to play a little game with you. So uh, uh, the podcast and radio audience can't see this, but uh for the folks who are watching on live stream, we're going to play a little game with our producer, Lauren, called Do You Think This Is Copyright Infringement or Not? So <laughs> the picture on the left is a photograph of legend, music legend, Prince. And the two photos in the middle and on the right are uh, artistic renderings from a another artist where it's, you know, they took the photo and they did some like extra stuff to it. They, you know, did some silk screen graphic right. stuff. Do you think uh, images two and three are infringing on the copyright of image one? Well, what is the copyright on image one? Is it something? Well, it's that not the iconic photograph. Owns? Yeah, okay. photographs are. Yeah, photographs can be copyrighted. Absolutely. Um, I would go with no. I mean, tributes to especially famous iconic things are not only commonplace, but it almost feels like. Um, you know, you, you, you can protect things a certain distance, but 
you know, saying Madonna, she's a public figure enough that you you can't, um, you know, you can parody certain people and stories when Ooh. they're, you know, wouldn't that fall into the same kind of a category? Am I, wrong? I, I am intrigued, Lauren, that you <laughs> used the P word, parody. parody. Well, it's a visual one, but it's the same concept, right? So- what one might contend that what the se- what the second artist did in this situation is transform the first work into something new and giving it a new character and uh, you know a, a new purpose perhaps mm-hmm. and that is the question that will be confronting the United States Supreme Court really later this year in the case of Andy Warhol Foundation v Goldsmith which is going to evaluate whether the second photo is a transformative use of the first photo. And we can uh, take the photos down now because I feel if we leave them up any longer, we're going to get sued for infringement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's that. But when you go into Warhol, that's a whole other thing. Well, because those prints are Warhol prints. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say stylistically, I'd be more worried that you were copyright infringing on his style. Um, but if <laughs> well, that's well, the he goal, can't infringe we'll on himself because, <laughs> yeah, that's, those, those, are, those are done by Warhol. Okay, fair enough. So... <laughs> Right. So what what the so this is only the second time in history. Oh, sorry, you had a point? No, I have a question. Yeah. So when he did the more iconic, like the famous ones, was it uh my brain wants to say um <laughs> shut up. Marilyn Monroe, that was who he did it of? Or am I thinking of the wrong picture scheme? Like the original multicolored thing that flipped. Did he copyright infringe when he did those or did he get permission I, on those? I don't know nearly enough about art to know uh, who did what or whatever. <laughs> I just know about this thing. <laughs> okay. But, so the reason why this case is interesting and it has bearing for indie artists is that it's the only the second time ever that the U.S. Supreme Court has is will have discussed the concept of transformative use. So we've talked about fair use on this program before, mm-hmm. right? The idea that Uh, There is a defense in copyright law where you can say, look, this might otherwise be copyright infringement, but there is a there are special cases of use that are so important from a creative standpoint, news reporting standpoint, criticism that our American ideals like the First Amendment, freedom of expression and progressing the science and useful arts are so important that there are particular kinds of uses under particular circumstances where we will allow the infringement to happen as fair use. Mm-hmm. And one of the situations where we permit fair use uh, or more likely to permit fair use, I should say, is when you can demonstrate that your work is transformative, which means that you are taking an existing work and through some changes, endowing it with a fundamentally different and new artistic purpose okay. um, that, you know, and so you brought up parody before. Yeah. So parody where you take an existing work and you change it to make fun of the original work. And I mentioned uh, tribute too, just for fairness. Yeah. Well, but you did mention parody. Parody Absolutely. is generally accepted as fair use because it is considered transformative. And so mm-hmm. the the first case that the Supreme Court took where they talked about transformativeness was a case involving a parody. Okay. Uh, Campbell v. Acuff Rose involving a Luther Campbell song, Two Live Crew, uh, back in 1994, uh, was the first case to uh, take up transformative use with respect to a creative work. And... And so since then, there's been a lot of discussion about, well, what makes something transformative? How much do you have to transform something for it to be transformative? And and the folks who own the original Prince photograph in this case are saying, look, we agree that parody is transformative. If you are trans, if you are changing the lyrics of a song 
and using it to make commentary on the original song, that is super transformative. But what they're contending is all that happened here is you took an existing photograph and you threw some colors on it, but you preserved the original photograph. That's not transformative. That's derivative, which is generally not as protected by fair use. And what makes this case interesting is depending on how the court defines fair use or defines transformativeness in this case is going to impact a lot of future art. People who make parody songs, people who make satire songs, where you change the words of a song and use it to make fun of something else in the world. People who want to modify existing art and make new art, knowing where that line is, where something becomes transformative or not, and thus giving you a stronger claim to fair use, is going to impact a lot of creators. So this is a case that I think all creators should watch closely. Mm -hmm. Certainly when the Supreme Court hands down a ruling on this and... God, it'll probably be like a year or something. It takes Supreme Court forever to do anything. Um, we're it's a dangerous talk ab- precedent for sure. It is. Oh, I no, mean, and- I know so many graphic designers that start with something to have a block and then change a lot of it. And, you know, kind of like you mentioned about music and and where does it stop, considering there's only so many notes. Um, you know, you you take somebody else's idea and build on it. And that's kind of how art evolves you start the precedent of I can show how close that is to something I did years ago, we're going to have a lot of issues. I get so nervous. Anytime an appellate court or the Supreme Court takes up any copyright case, especially fair use, because fair use so often turns on like artistic judgments. Mm -hmm. We are taking these old fart judges who don't know anything about art or music or God forbid pop culture Mm-hmm. And we're making them art critics where they have to make artistic judgments. Like, why does Brett Kavanaugh get to decide whether something has a transformative artistic purpose? <laughs> like, that seems like, you know, and, and nothing against Brett Kavanaugh in either direction. I just wouldn't, like, trust him, you know, on matters of art. And so, yeah, if they make Ooh. the wrong move here, if they move that transformative transformativeness letter too far lever too far in one direction or another, it has real impact on the day-to-day lives of artists. So... God, I hope they get this one right, whatever it is. Yeah, (laughs) not fun. I talk about it all day, but we've got to bring our guest in after the break. Oh, yes, because we're (laughs) going to get him to talk all about uh, this law and everything. This will be interesting. All right. And we've got lots of great questions to ask him about Veer Music, which I am excited to hear about because I love label services companies. Rusty Harmon joining us after the break. Don't go anywhere. Keep checking out Break the Business. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including 
audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody, on Twitch Live, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, all major podcast platforms, and Sirius XM 145. Wherever you're checking us out, we are so, so thrilled to have you. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest here. He is a music executive and the co-founder of the label services company Veer Music. The company provides record release campaigns, major label services, and distribution for independent artists and labels who want to maintain their creative vision without sacrificing control. You can find out more about our guest work by visiting www.veermusic.com. That's V-E-R-E music.com. We are happy to welcome Rusty Harmon on a break the business. Hi, Rusty. Hey there. How are you guys? Doing well, sir. All right. Before Great. the break, we were talking uh, extensively about the new bill find, floating its way through the California State Assembly, uh, the FAIR Act, AB 2926, which would... Uh, basically give artists more of an ability to get out of their record deals after seven years without uh, facing uh, additional penalties for doing so. Uh, love to get the perspective from a longtime music executive on this, who's uh, certainly no stranger to the label uh, model, uh, has worked with lots of artists, as I can see from the profuse amount of gold and platinum records behind you. That's very nice, very impressive. Uh, what do you think about all this? Um, my wife likes to call that my ego wall and, um, <laughs> and she will not let me take those upstairs. Those are downstairs in my basement office. So, um, but thank you. I, it's funny. I was listening to you guys chat and I, I, there's, I have two, two comments about that. Number one is, uh, we should just all get back to recording records like the Beatles did back in the sixties and put out a record every six months. And you wouldn't have to worry about coming up on not putting out any music in seven years. And secondly, um, in my experience, it's always been the other way around. It, and that is if, if a records, if an artist isn't selling any records, the, the label can't wait to get rid of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not a matter of, oh, please let us out of our deal. And, oh, let's think about it. Maybe we can work something out. No, if you're not selling enough records to at least break even and then some, they're just going to cut you. I mean, they're not. We're not going to keep you around. I feel like those days have long gone. The days of developing an artist and having patience and sticking around for records two, three, and four because something is, they smell something or they feel something or there's a vibe. I just don't see that happening anymore. I think they, I think there's so much testing going on um, for these artists that have got, you know, that when you start getting those artists that are, you talk about the advances. And labels, if labels are, if you're, if you're an artist, that's able to get an advance. That means that a label is going, you're probably a label that, a, 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 you're probably an artist that a label is going to sink, you know, those magic numbers between half a million and $2 million in you to break you or to, 
or to help promote your record and get it going. If they spent $2 million on you and they're not anywhere close to recouping, they're going to cut you so fast. They're, at, at some point, it just becomes, you know, the, the point of no return and, and you can't keep putting good money after bad. So I, I'm sure that there's people that have had experiences. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making a law for it. But um, I, it's, it's very seldom that I've seen somebody stick around that long and uh, people hoping that they're going to get a return on it. Uh, I, I've never seen that. So what accounts for artists like Ray then that we, we put up the tweet uh, earlier? Maybe we can put it up again if we can find it um, where that was. an There you go. So that so you see there's an artist there in the tweet who had a four album deal um, was in that deal for years. And the label never forget even getting to album number two. They never even got to an album with that artist. And, you know, while I agree with you, that there are lots of cases where the label does the right thing when an artist isn't hitting and. You know, you know, basically gives that artist the you know, ability to leave so they can try other options. I We do see instances like this one where maybe a artist is more kind of on the fence or an, a label thinks that the artist could have long-term potential, but they just need more time to break that artist. And that's where you see these deals that get strung out for a long time. Yeah, I, I could not. It wouldn't be fair for me to comment on that situation without knowing all of the intricacies of what's gone on. Maybe they put something out at radio and it didn't test well. Maybe they needed to work on their performance a little bit more. They weren't ready to go on tour. I, I, I can't speak as to why yeah. they weren't ready to put a record out. Uh, but I would like to think, and you're an attorney, I'd like to think that you would put in a clause in a contract that would state that if you haven't put out music within you know, a certain amount of time that they had the option of taking the recordings that they had recorded so far and trying to monetize those someplace. Um, if they weren't going to let them go, then, uh, or maybe even having a, a time limit on, on how long that they, that they had to put the record out. You know, I'm, I'm in Nashville um, and Nashville's full of artists that have been signed to deals for, for many years. And, and that exact scenario happens. They, they test something at radio and it's not quite ready it doesn't test well. Um, and, and, um, and, and, and then they, they try to figure out a way to, uh, to get the band, either the artist to, to start writing with somebody else or getting pitched other songs from other publishers, uh, get back in the studio as quickly as possible and try to send out another single. Um, and it's, I, I, it's my opinion and my experience that uh, country music is kind of the, last bastion of patience um like it it's it's amazing how how much country music today resembles uh singer songwriters and early album oriented rock aor from the early 70s um in the sense that the, they they will patiently wait for an artist to uh, i mean if, if you for those of you that listen that have ever heard of john pardee go go check out his early he, he was signed for five or six years before he had his first breakout hit. Um, and thank goodness their label just kept letting him record and put out new music. So, I, I mean, again, every instance is different and I, I can't speak to, to Ray. I feel bad for, for that artist. And um, uh, if I knew more about it, maybe I could speak a little more about it. But I, uh, I, I, again, like I said, obviously it's a, it's a good thing that they're making this law because I'm sure some artists have been affected by it. 
Yeah. Well, uh, to raise credit, once she did put out this tweet and make a huge PR mess out of it, the label wound up dropping her. So she sort of got what she wanted there. There Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about your background, Rusty, because I'm pretty intrigued by this. I love the origin stories of some of the guests that we have on this program, Lauren. And you might be interested to know, Lauren, that uh, Rusty uh, started out as a chemistry major in Uh, college. He was going uh, to uh, be a scientist somehow found his way into being a music industry executive. What happened in college? Um, party. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure you were just going to say organic chemistry, which is a brutal subject. So. No, I, I, it's funny. I, um, I, I thought that I was a pretty good chemistry student in high school, and I, I, I felt like I, I did everything that I was supposed to do to prepare for college. And, um, I ended up with a little bit of, a, of an academic scholarship and, and was all set to be a chemistry major. And, and I feel like what I learned in two years of advanced placement chemistry in high school, they went over about in about two weeks uh, <laughs> at NC State. And after after that, it was just over my head. And I, I didn't have the patience to stick around to figure it out. And um, I... I, I was destined to be in the music industry. I, I, I got the calling uh, to work at the college radio station early on. And um, once I walked in and uh, I, I met a guy that was on the air. And uh, for those of you that have been involved in a radio station and atmosphere and you walk in and that if you've never seen it, that magic that happens when the DJ puts on his headphones and says, like, hey, wait, wait one second. Like, you're just chatting normally. And then, you know, he's like, hey, wait, wait one second. Puts on the headphones on air, comes on. And it's like, yeah, welcome to WKNC. And he just puts on his radio voice and he does the break in, you know, 60 seconds and walks up the song right to where the lyrics start. And like, and then he, and then he takes off the headphones and the on air sign comes off. And I'm just looking at him like, how did you do that? <laughs> like, yeah. like, I was I'm, a college yeah. radio DJ too. So like yeah. you were speaking my language, man. You know, dude, I, I, and this was, you know, pre-CDs and pre-programming. It was, it was all records. And uh, so you queued it up and you spun it back. And, and uh, I just fell in love with it instantly. And I, I, I ended up changing majors. And um, I, 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 I think that's a really nice way of saying that I, I, I lost my scholarship. I got kicked out of the chemistry department. And uh, I was very fortunate to land in the communications department at NC State and start working for the college radio station. And um, that started my career in the music industry. So I'm very happy that it turned out the way that it did. I couldn't imagine being in textiles chemistry still today. Well, I would say that hardware you have on the wall behind you perhaps speaks to the change of the major being a good one. Um, and along the way, you've had a really cool career in the music industry, uh, managing top artists, uh, working with so many big names in the industry and achieving so much. And now you're where you are today with Veer Music, setting up a label services company that you've co-founded with a lot of other terrific industry veterans. And so for the folks listening right now, can you distinguish a little bit between what makes a label services company like yours different from the traditional label model that we were talking about at the beginning of the interview? Yeah, you know, I, um, I it's so funny listening to you talk about uh, people uh, trying to get their masters back and how the, the major labels will never give masters back even after all these years. Like one of the things that I love about what we do is the artists own the masters 100%. Um, and I, 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 <laughs> I Who did that? Like, <laughs> I, I feel like, um, you know, we talk about disruptors in the, in the music industry. And I, 
Um, I've, I'm old enough to have been around when Napster started and, and those of us that when file sharing first started and, and everybody that was ingrained in the music industry at the time, everybody went, you remember Metallica suing everybody. And, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I managed Hootie and the Blowfish and we were part of, uh, of some hearings, the grand jury in New York city with, uh, Napster. And so like, I, I fought it in the beginning, everybody, every major label executive fought it for the longest time. And now look at, it's only been 20 years and look at how it's, it's changed the industry and how, um, you know, labels are more profitable today than they've ever been. It, it, but, but it was, it was a disruptor because for so many years, there was one way of, of, of operating in the music business. Labels had all the power. You couldn't release music at all unless a label signed you. And, um, and then they put up the money for, and then they owned the masters and you never got a chance to get those masters back. And that's why you, it's so funny. You, you go listen to some of those bands today that, um, that have gone back and re-recorded their hits because that was the only way they were going to get uh, any ownership of that. And it's so sad to hear, to hear these guys 25 years later singing, um, you know, some, I don't want to say any of the, any of the artists, but, you know, <laughs> singing, singing the songs that we grew up listening to they're iconic songs. And then you, you hear them 25 years later and it's just not the same. Um, so anyway, disruptors. And I, I, I've been a part of disruptors and I, I feel like what we are doing is truly disruptive. And I think that it's in a lot of ways, it's a, it's really good for artists and it's good for the music industry as a whole. I think it's just going to take a minute to, for everybody to figure out what, what, um, you know, the power that artists truly have. So, so what we do is, uh, we give, we give artists the opportunity to, um, there's so many ways artists can put their records out today between TuneCore, DistroKids, CD Baby, um, you know, me and you, the, th the three of us could could cut something when we got off of uh, off the air and have it up by midnight tonight uh, on TuneCore. That doesn't mean anybody's going to hear it or that it's going to be any good, but we could put it up. Um, and and that's you know we've we've never had that opportunity before. Well, and what what separates uh, companies like ours from the the TuneCores and the CD Babies and the Distro Kids is we create a marketing campaign with that distribution so yes we push it out to all the dsps just like those uh those those distributors do but we do it with a major distributor behind us which is ada uh, which is owned by the warner music group and for those of you listening that are familiar with some of the bigger distributors uh the orchard is owned by sony music um our our distributor is ada which is owned by the warner music group so um, we are basically a marketing a marketing company that distributes records. We are a record label, but our distribution comes with a built-in marketing campaign. So we create a marketing campaign for every single that we put out. And then we work with our label manager at ADA and we release that music. Uh, when we release that music, we build out marketing drivers that the label manager is then able to utilize when he's doing his pitching to all the DSPs. So when he's meeting with the Spotify team, or the Pandora team, or the the Apple team, or the YouTube team. When he's meeting with those folks, he has an arsenal of marketing uh, right at his fingertips. We actually prepare Google Docs for each release, so we, we like to get the records in the system about six weeks prior to release. So when we put those records in the system, if you are an artist that tours, uh, we'll include your touring schedule. If you're uh, if you're uh, active on social media and you have 
that your if your TikTok platform is blowing up and you've got a pre-save campaign and you did a funny little video that gets 30,000 views the first day and 3 million the second day, that becomes a marketing driver. We put that information down. Um, if you've got a little money for to spend for digital advertising, if you're adept at Facebook ads and Google ads and you know how to take care of all that, you've got a great publicist and they've been able to secure a wonderful podcast like Break the Business for you. And you're able to go on the air and talk about your product. That's a marketing driver. All of this stuff goes into this, this marketing driver that we deliver to our uh, our label uh, manager. And then when he speaks with his, his DSP reps and they're talking about the editorial playlisting, he's able to pull that up and walk through that with them so that he's not just saying, hey, you need to play this. It's a really good song. Uh, with all the, the multitude of songs that are being released every day, uh, you want to be able to break through and, and be able to, to have a voice and be able to let those uh, the, the the creators of the editorial playlist understand that you are doing something with your career. You are setting yourself apart. And we do all of that. And as I said earlier, the artist owns the master, but the, the, here's the, and that sounds wonderful here, but if there is any bad news whatsoever is that yes, you, you own the master, but it's because the artist controls the spin. So they are the ones putting money in if they have the money to pay for a publicist, if they have the money to pay for a social media manager, if they have the money to pay for digital advertising. If these artists don't and they're on our roster, we can build out campaigns without them having to spend a lot of money. It's just obvious that if you're able, if, if you're not very good at social media management and you decided you wanted us to help you with that, well, we'd have to go out and find somebody. Um, one of the people that we work with, we'd have to go find somebody within your budget, uh, whether it's $500 a month or, or $20 an hour or all the way up to, you know, the companies that charge $5,000 a month, um, whatever your budget can afford, we would find that. Uh, and it's the same thing with publicity, same thing with, uh, with videography and social content creation, whether it's videography or, or, ph or photography or, uh, and then we also utilize brand partnerships. Um, if you have an existing relationship with a company, say it's a boot company or, um, I don't know, a clothing retailer of some sort, we'll try to integrate them into the marketing of the release of the records as well. So you control the spin. We utilize all of the tools that you have. Here's the really good news. Aside from the fact that you and the masters, you start making money from the very first dollar of income earned. And then finally, and I'll shut up about this, is uh, because we are owned by the Warner Music Group, I've built it into our deals that if the artist um, does really well, if they if they achieve a certain level of, of success with their streaming, and if they're interested in moving up to a major label, we have that baked into our deal that especially within the Warner Music Group, if they want to go to Warner Brothers, Electra, or Atlantic Records, uh, we can we can upstream them seamlessly, um, and and we're. Uh, that's that's really our goal is to help the artists kind of achieve that major label status if they if that's what they want. Not not every artist wants to be at a major label. That a lot of artists like having this control. Back to yeah. your point about earlier about uh, the artists that record records and they never get put out. That'll never happen with a label like ours. I mean, if you record a record and you come to us, we're going to put it out for you. So, is the ideal artist for somebody like Veer Music an artist that has? Uh, already achieves some some traction, some foundation, and has already an existing budget that they can use to get the most out of 
not only the services that your company can provide, but also to get the additional support services that are going to work in concert with your company to maximize the artist's impact? Yeah, I think that there's, gosh, you know, I say, what's the ideal artist? I I really feel like we have a roster that really top to bottom, every type of artist. We have an artist that had, uh, has more than 500 million streams. It's had several number one records. And we've had artists that are putting out music for the first time. Um, so we, 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 can, we can work with a multitude of artists. But yeah, if you either have a little bit of a budget, whether it's from your career or maybe you just have some money, family or a previous job or an investor of some sort or a brand partner that wants to put some money into your career. Um, if you have a little bit of money for a spend of some sort, that's obviously going to benefit you because we're able to do all the bells and whistles, you know, create videos, create social media content, um, uh, do a little bit of digital advertising, uh, hire a publicist if, if needed. Um, but yeah, I, if, if you're an artist that's been on the road for a little bit, you know, we can talk about the numbers, but, um, I having been, I I've been, I've been a manager for, for more than 30 years and I've, I've, I still have, I, I like to say I run this label really from a management perspective. Um, that's well, the, the lines are sort of blurring, right? Yeah, especially well, they, as, they really are. especially as a distribution and marketing of music becomes more seamless and, and less expensive than it was say 30 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, the roles, you know, these roles are changing, right? Our artists right. can self-manage, they can self-label, they can bring in somebody who can handle both of those things for them. It's a, it's a lot more uh, nebulous than it once was in terms Absolutely. of not having clearly defined roles anymore. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. And it's, that's why it's like, it's kind of the wild, wild west. I, I love that, that there's so <laughs> many opportunities for artists to, to, um, to get creative with how they do pursue their career. And there's no one way to do it. Um, you know, we've, we've all heard stories of the artists that have never toured and they sit at home and do nothing but social media. And then we, we know of stories that are the exact opposite. They, they play nonstop. They'll play anywhere at any time and go out on the road. And I, I, I really, I, that's really the kind of band that I, I, I grew up in the business with touring bands. I, I love bands that love going on the road and can play in a coffee shop or play in front of a stadium. Uh, it doesn't matter. They just want to play. But yeah, if you're an artist that can interact with your fan base, whether it's through social media, through touring, um, I, I can build a marketing campaign to fit you and we can work with the numbers. Like I, I feel like the system that we utilize for these releases and the timeframes and tripping the proper algorithms within the DSPs. Again, if you're one of those artists that kind of lives in the hundred thousand to 500,000 range, I can get you to a million plus streaming. If you're a million plus streaming artist, but you haven't quite gotten to the five to 10 million range, I can get you to the 5 million range. If you're a five to 10 million streaming artist, maybe for one or two songs, I can get, I can get you to the point where most all of your releases are in that five to 10 or 20 million streaming range. So I, I like to feel, I, I like to think that we have a game plan for every level of artist. And if you don't have the money to put into your career, I'd like to think that the things that we do will help you uh, earn the money to start being able to put some money back into your career. So great. Um, yep. Let me just ask you this real quick. Cause I, I have a couple more questions that I want to get to. Um, we have about five minutes before we lose radio here, but 
uh, just just out of curiosity, so, uh, how does how does Veer Music bring on artists? Do you are you selecting specific artists like the same way that like a label has an A and R department and is signing artists, or is it more open enrollment like a TuneCore or a Distro Kid? No, it's not an open enrollment. I, I we do we we have in house A and R. Uh, Alyssa Logan runs our A and R staff, um, and I've I've been in Nashville for seventeen years now, and I've been in the business for a very long time. I I've got a lot of friends that that send artists to me. I, I've got friends that are managers that ha, that know about what we're doing. I've got publisher friends. I've got you know even even the people at Warner Brothers are sending me acts because they want them to be in the family, but they're not quite ready for radio yet. So there's there's a a multitude of ways that we're able to find acts. But I I um, we we do a little research just like everybody else. I mean we're. Uh, I, I I don't live on TikTok, but I have staff members that do live on TikTok, so they're always looking for music on there. I I love to check out the the weekly re- release radars on Spotify and the other DSPs and see. You know, I look to see something that's got decent numbers and sounds good if they're what their CP line is or or who they're signed if they you know if they're on a label. So I'll do a little research myself. Our team does, and I and by word of mouth. Great. All right. Uh, I have a question uh, that I, I can only give you like 60 seconds on because I don't want to lose radio here. But I, I do need to ask you this because it was a topic that uh, our producer Lauren and I, we were just debating about three weeks ago. We were waiting for you to help us answer it. We had a listener question about three weeks ago where this person was wondering what they were an, a musician who was graduating high school. And they were thinking, do I go to college because my dad is saying I need to go to college or do I take a year off? and really focus on my career and take a gap year or maybe just not go to college at all. Um, wanted, wanted to get your thoughts on this. I know you teach uh, music business. Is there value to getting a college degree for an indie artist? They're better off just taking those four years of, of their music making prime and just trying to make a go of it in their career. I can't believe you're giving me less than 60 seconds to answer. This I question. know. I'm so sorry. But, go um, bl- blame Sirius XM. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think that one of the greatest things about finishing a college education is finishing a college education. I think that what it speaks volumes of the, of the student that's able to get through all of the heartaches and trials and the things you, the, the, the deadlines and interacting with all the different professors. And I, I just think there, there's a lot to be said for, for completing a college education. Do you have to do it? Absolutely not. And, and th- does it matter what your GPA is when you graduate? Absolutely not. Not in the music business, it, it doesn't. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I, everybody, every artist is different. Everybody's got a different background. Everybody's got different parents with different expectations. And uh, so I, I, I'm not going to tell somebody don't go to college. I just think there's a lot of life lessons that can be learned while you're in a college environment. And it's a safe place for the most part. It's a safe place to learn. And oh my gosh, every college just about's got a great music scene of some sort. You ought That's to be able so to true. find a music scene. So you learn a lot of important things in college, like don't yeah. study chemistry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can find out more about our guest work by visiting www.veermusic.com. That's V E R E music.com. Rusty Harmon is our guest. Rusty, last question before we let you go. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Absolutely. Trust your team. 
you know, you, you go through all this heartache and, and, and interviewing and hanging out with people and you hire managers or you hire uh, a road manager or, or you, know, you, you assemble a team of people around you. And I get it. Like sometimes it goes bad, just like dating somebody. But for the most part, you know, these people that you've endeared your career to um, are, are pretty smart people. And you thought that they were, or you wouldn't have brought them on in the first place. It's, it's kind of hard if every time something goes wrong or somebody does something that you don't agree with, that you want to turn around and fire somebody or, or get a new manager or get a new booking agent or whatever. I mean, you're, the music industry is full of peaks and valleys. You're going to have ups and downs and you're going to have good days and bad days. And if you feel like you got to fire somebody every time that there's a, a mistake made or a ball dropped, uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a pattern and if they're just not, if they're, if they're literally, you know, letting things fall through the cracks that were, that were softballs, then yes, I, I, I understand. But for the most part, you know, I think you need to be patient with your team members that you put around you and uh, try to grow together until you're at a point to where you can maybe get a more experienced manager or a more experienced booking agent. Right on rusty. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys having me right on. And thank you all for listening to break the business. We'll see you next week.